So, are you in Mark 9? We'll read it here in just a minute, but let me just say, for the past two weeks, we've kind of been on a, we've kind of had a mountaintop experience, so to speak, because we've looked at the transfiguration on top of the Mount of Transfiguration, and we've seen it, of course, through the pages of Scripture. So, um, hopefully, you have seen through the eyes of faith, something of the glory of the Lord Jesus through this passage. None of us that's here today were there, right? We weren't there on that, on that mountain. But we actually have something better than that experience. And that's amazing. We have the Holy Scriptures in which... We don't just get a small, short, partial glimpse of Christ, but we get an unfolding of who he is and what he accomplished and what's coming in the future for those who love him and and put their trust in him and so forth. And so, in a sense, we have something that's much more um, fleshed out much more thorough, much more studyable, right? Even Peter says that. You know, Peter was there on that mountain. And we saw um, near the end of last week's message, I believe it was, where in Peter's second epistle, he says exactly that, that he says Scripture is even more fully confirmed than that transfiguration experience. And what he's saying is that is more, Scripture is more stable. It's more reliable over time. Just compare, um, compare God-breathed Scripture to any experience. And Peter says Scripture wins every time. Just think about that and why that is. We can study Scripture, right? We can study it. We can analyze the the words and the sentences, and that's a wonderful privilege. And God's words are worthy of careful study and thought. Can you engage with an experience in that same type of way? You really can't. You can remember it, sort of, if your memory doesn't fail you, right? You can think back on it. but you're liable to forget some of it. The details are going to fade from your memory as your memory ages. You don't have that experience, in other words, right in front of you in black and white for repeated study and reference. That's the nature of an experience. That's not the standard for the Christian life, right? The standard is Scripture. And Peter says it's like a lamp that shines in your dark places, just like the psalmist said, right? In Psalm 119, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. An experience can't really light our path in the the same way. We need something concrete and reliable in front of us, something we can reference, something that will be a standard for us, right? That's what we have in the word of God. And there's a reason why God gave us Scripture 
in this written form. Aren't you glad that he did that? When something's written down, there's a, um, there's a permanence to it. It doesn't fade away. There, there's a solid foundation there that you can keep on coming back to. It can be studied. It can be confirmed. It can be talked about. It can be meditated on and so forth. And I'm just glad that we have this God-breathed scripture. I hope you realize what's in your hands right now if you're holding the sacred book. It's a gift from God. Cherish it. Study it. Read it. Memorize it. Meditate on it. So, today, after um, hopefully having been um, jolted, is the word I kept using last week, hopefully having been jolted to the reality of who Jesus is, shining in his bright heavenly glory on top of that mountain, we come to the part of the passage now where the mountaintop experience is over and the apostles are coming down off of the mountain with Jesus. Let's read that passage together now. Look at your Bible, Mark 9, and we're just going to read verses 9 to 13. Mark 9, 9 to 13. And this is the word of the living and true God. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. Amen. Let's be, by God's grace, uh, instructed by this passage this morning. I like us, I'd like us to look at this, first of all. This language of the Son of Man. The Son of Man language. That's our first point. We've seen Jesus... Um, use this language of the Son of Man before in the Gospel of Mark, but we really hadn't talked about in detail what that is, where that comes from. And we won't really get into super detail today either because we could talk about it for a long time. But let's talk about it a little bit. Sometimes in the Scripture, the phrase the Son of Man just means a human being, right? In the book of Ezekiel, for instance, it's used over and over again that way. Just one example to show you what I'm talking about. Ezekiel 2.1 says, And he said to me, that is, God said to Ezekiel, Son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak with you. So son of man is kind of the same thing as saying, Hey, son of Adam, stand up, let me talk to you. And of course, if we apply that to Jesus, I mean, there is a sense, of course, in which Jesus is that kind of son of man, right? He is 
We know from the doctrine of the hypostatic union that Jesus has two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. We can say, like R.C. Sproul said, he is truly God and truly man. Um, And if you think about it, there's never been another being like him in that, nor will there ever be one. He's unique. He, uh, He was born, you know, as to his humanity from a human mother, Mary, just like any other human being is born in the natural way, just like you and I. He became human. We know that. Thank God for that, because he can be our representative just like Adam was our representative in sin. So, praise God that he did take on human flesh. But there is another um, particular use of this phrase, son of man, that points to something higher than just a generic, you know, human being type of a definition. And this usage and this... um, What I'm referring to would be very familiar to a Jewish person who knew the Old Testament scriptures. The usage that I'm talking about is actually found in the book of Daniel. It's in chapter 7. Let me read this to you, and I'll actually bring it up on the screen here in a second. Um, This is Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Daniel receives this um, awesome vision from God about the future, and he sees this. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, that's God, and was presented before him. And to him, to this son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now here we see a different kind of son of man, don't we? This isn't generic language referring to just any old human being, right? This particular son of man is presented before the Ancient of Days and given dominion over everything and every person. And it says his kingdom shall never come to an end. So when Jesus calls himself the son of man, He's not merely saying, I'm a fellow human being with you. He is saying, I am the son of man that you've read about in Daniel chapter 7, the king. And in case you're thinking that I'm exaggerating with that or something, the religious leaders of Jesus' day picked up on that very easily because They knew exactly what he was saying, and they thought that he was blaspheming when he said that. For him to be claiming that title for himself to them was blasphemy. And if you're jotting down verses to look up, look up these later. Mark 14, 62. 
Matthew 26, 64, and Luke 22, 69. When they heard Jesus use that phrase for himself, that title for himself, the Son of Man, with the imagery that went along with the book of Daniel, they said, what more do we need to hear? This man is blaspheming. He deserves to die. So, again, so much more could be said about the phrase, the Son of Man, and we could look through the usages in both Testaments, but I at least wanted to take time as we're going through Mark to point out that important passage in Daniel so that we know, just as Bible students, uh, what Jesus is referring to when he says the Son of Man. He refers to himself that way. And you'll see as we're approaching the second half of Mark now, he starts using that title for himself more and more as he journeys on to Jerusalem. Okay, here's what I'd like to point out next um, from our passage. Number two in our little outline here, the hinging point, the resurrection. Read verse nine with me one more time. It says, and as they were coming down the mountain, he, Jesus, charged them to tell no one what they had seen Notice this, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Now, we've heard Jesus make similar statements before uh, in the Gospel of Mark to, you know, he performs a miracle and he says, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone what I've done to you. Just go present yourself to the priest, for instance, to the leper, but keep things quiet. And we got to remember, I think, that Jesus here, he is on a particular mission. He knows people are not going to always understand what he was there to do. They had their own expectations of him and of the Messiah in general. And so since they're not going to understand everything that he was doing, he didn't want to be hindered by large crowds uh, trying to force him to be their political leader. And we know, at least on one occasion, that that actually happened. That's not far-fetched to say that a crowd would do that because in John six fifteen it tells us about an instance where that happened. It happened right after he fed 5,000 people with just a small amount of food. And it says in John six fifteen perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So we do get these comments from time to time from Jesus in the Gospels that seem a little weird to us, perhaps, because we're living in the Great Commission era, right? Where we're instructed, go preach the gospel to every creature, tell it far and wide, tell everyone who Christ is and what he's done and so forth. But here at this point in time in redemptive history, Jesus is right in the middle of accomplishing what needed to be accomplished so that the gospel will truly be the good news that we know it to be. So, in order to keep those distractions and those detractions of that path of his mission to a minimum, Jesus would occasionally tell people, 
not to tell others about him, to keep it a secret for now. And of course, we've seen sometimes they listen to him and sometimes they don't. You remember the leper in the first chapter of Mark? Jesus told him not to tell anybody. It says he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places, it says. Mark 1, 45. Now, having said that, what we see here in, in Mark 9, 9 is a little different from those other comments. How so? There is a condition for ending the silence here, isn't there? For the first time, Jesus puts a time limit on their silence about him. He, um, he essentially says, there's going to be a turning point, a hinging point around which this entire gospel revolves. It's like the axle around which the whole thing rotates, right? Here it is. It's my resurrection. And I guess what I'm simply trying to point out to us here is how important the resurrection was, even in the mind of Jesus, down to the point where he can say that when that happens, the floodgates are open. Open your mouth and let it rip at that point. And of course, we talk about the resurrection at Easter. We have a, you know, a special time. All Christians are thinking about the resurrection on Easter. But do you regularly think about the resurrection of Christ? We ought to, right? Do you think about what it means for our faith? I mean, the resurrection of Christ it is the pinnacle of Jesus' curse-breaking power as the Son of God. It's the ultimate antidote for sin's curse that was made manifest when Jesus reversed the primary consequence of sin, which is death. Think about that with me for a moment. So, God commands Adam and Eve in the garden not to eat of a particular tree. And what did he say? He gave them the consequences if they disobeyed, right? He says, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely, what? Die. Genesis 2.17. So when Jesus comes bursting out of the grave, it was like the worst consequence of sin was just snapped in half like a little twig. It was rendered powerless, death was, for all those who will ever trust in Christ. Death is no longer a scary thing as it once was to us if you have trusted in the Lord Jesus. Christ's resurrection secured that for all believers Praise the Lord. Hebrews 2 says it this way, that Jesus delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Hebrews 2.15. So the fear 
this fear of death that we naturally have in a fallen world now where death exists. It's like a chain around our neck. We're slaves to this fear. It's the worst thing we could possibly face. It's the thing that we don't want to deal with as human beings, generally speaking. It's the thing we don't want to talk about, right? Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah calls death this covering that is cast over all people, a veil that's spread over all nations. So it's like this, it's like this dark cloud that's following us around saying, you're dying, you're dying, you're dying every moment. But God says in that same chapter, Isaiah 25, that he is going to swallow up death forever. Praise God. The way that happened was through Jesus rising from the dead. And so, it is so central, the resurrection of Christ is, it's so central that without it, Christianity couldn't exist, and it wouldn't exist. You remember Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15? That if the resurrection didn't happen, we are of all people to be most pitied. But since Christ did rise, people have the privilege of being raised with him now by putting their faith in him. Amazing thought. To, um, just to emphasize the resurrection even further, without the resurrection... The cross of Christ turns out to be nothing special, right? It's just another guy dying on a Roman cross. There were hundreds of people that died on Roman crosses. Without Jesus' rising, what he did on the cross didn't mean much beyond the sadness of another guy dying at the hands of the Romans. But... When this man, Jesus of Nazareth, predicts exactly what's going to happen to him, tells it openly, then he goes and he lays his life down of his own accord, then takes it up again three days later, it proves something about him. Romans 1.4 says he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So, Jesus' resurrection was the hinging point. I wonder, do we think of it that way? The whole world changed when Jesus rose. Someone defeated death. Nobody had ever done it before. Nobody could do it, but Jesus did it. And he tells his disciples, walking down the mountaintop, don't tell anybody what you saw today until I rise from the dead. And I think maybe the, um, the application for us is this, that we ought to view Christ's resurrection that way, as the hinging point of the whole gospel of course, we know at the cross, not trying to do some weird totem pole thing between the cross and the resurrection, it all works together, but you know, the cross is where Christ took the wrath of God on our behalf. He atoned for sin there, but 
where he proved that all of that, that what he was doing, where he proved that it wasn't just talk, where he proved that it was legitimate and that it was um, God-approved, is at his resurrection. And I really don't think, I said this before, but I really don't think that it's an exaggeration to say that the only reason any of us have a life worth living is because Jesus rose. That's true. What a pitiful existence we would have as human beings in a fallen world if Jesus did not rise. But because Jesus rose, we can look forward to all kinds of things, can't we? It gives us something glorious to look forward to after this life, after this tear-filled life. And it even infuses us in the presence, or in the present, rather, with a, uh, a zest, a joy that lets us look triumphantly past whatever circumstances we find ourselves in to what's coming in eternity because Christ was raised. Gives me chills a little bit thinking about Jesus coming down that mountain and confidently predicting everything he was about to do, the look of total control and sovereignty as he says to these men, don't tell anyone what happened today until I rise from the dead. This leads us right up into the the next point we see here, which is the disciples' confusion what I mean is their, their confusion, well, about several things, but mainly about the resurrection. Look at verse 10 with me again. Verse 10. It says, so they kept the matter to themselves. They did listen, unlike the leper we talked about earlier. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. So they were um, debating kind of in their minds or perhaps with one another and wondering what did Jesus mean by the statement that he was going to rise from the dead? And I think it helps to point out some things here to help us understand um, something from their perspective. Uh, Even though Jesus had just told them at the end of chapter 8 exactly what he was going to do, that he was going to suffer, you know, Go through all kinds of things, be rejected, be killed, rise from the dead, he says. They still didn't get it. They didn't have a place for this type of thing in their mind. And I think it helps to remember that they were living in a time where there wasn't a written New Testament yet, right? They were living in a time where they were witnessing the events of the New Testament that would be written down later, but they weren't yet. They were witnessing as it was happening. And, of course, later on, they themselves as apostles would record some of these things for us to read, and the Scripture, excuse me, the Spirit would help them recall everything that he intended to be recalled and everything he intended to be written down as, as he carried those holy men of old along. And they would teach us what all the 
theological ramifications were of what Jesus had been doing and how we are to respond to what he did and all of that. But in the Old Testament, the prevailing thought about resurrection or about a resurrection was that it was something that was going to take place at the end of the age. Daniel 12 talks about people who are sleeping in the dust of the earth, the dead, awakening, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. Daniel 12, 2. And so... I think it just helps to remember that, that when they heard resurrection, they're thinking end of the age. And there's another example of this. When Jesus is talking to the sister of Lazarus, Martha, you remember that conversation? Martha says, Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And she's sad. And Jesus tells her, your brother will rise again. And do you remember what Martha says? Martha says, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. John eleven twenty four. So there's the typical view. They don't have a context for this separate resurrection of Jesus. Now there was references to it, but perhaps they were missed. We could talk about those at another time. I don't want to get too sidetracked, but... This wasn't computing in their minds, in other words, when Jesus is talking about rising from the dead. So just think about that for a moment. They hear Jesus talking about this rising, and they're thinking, okay, he's talking about the end of the age, and he's the Messiah. I mean, we believe he's the Messiah. Peter has just articulated what they all believed in Mark 8, 29, when he says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, And so they're thinking, wait a minute, if Jesus is the Messiah and he's going to rise from the dead, then the end of the age must be right on top of us. Uh, And then they start thinking, well, wait another minute, what about Elijah? Because they remembered something that the scribes had taught them from the Old Testament about Elijah. And maybe Elijah was in their minds because they just saw Elijah on the mountain, right? Elijah and Moses were there with Jesus talking. And so they asked Jesus, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? That's verse 11. And if you don't see that connection, maybe let me try to explain it just a little bit. In the book of Malachi, right at the end of the Old Testament, God says something through the prophet. Let me show it to you. Malachi 4 Verses 5 and 6, he says, this is right at the end of our Old Testament. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So try to follow with me here, Jesus, whom they rightly believed was the Messiah, is saying he's going to rise from the dead, which to their current understanding meant it's going to happen at the end of the age. So to them, they're saying, to them, Jesus is saying, the end's almost here. And then they're thinking, 
Well, how is the end almost here if the Messiah is here and he hasn't instituted his promised kingdom yet? And on top of that, what about the coming of Elijah that comes before that? Um, So they're reeling a little bit here. Maybe they're wondering, was that the coming of Elijah up there on the mountain, Lord, and now we're about to see the kingdom come to fruition? Is this it? Are we about to see it? Are we about to witness it? And what they had missed was the suffering that comes before the glory. They had missed, for instance, what Isaiah 53 was talking about. They had missed what Psalm 22 was talking about. They missed or misinterpreted all those prophecies about the Messiah having to suffer before the kingdom comes into full fruition. So do you see their confusion a little bit? I hope I've not made it more confusing. I hope I've cleared it up a little bit. They had this skewed notion of what the Messiah was going to do and how the timeline was going to play out. But what Jesus was going to do is actually more glorious than just set up some earthly kingdom. He was going to actually be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who atones for the sins of all of his people, Jew and Gentile, for all time. And he was about to do this based on what the entire Old Testament had pointed to all along. And just in case we're still thinking, you know, I don't see how they could be so confused. He just told them plainly that he was going to rise again. Surely there's another explanation as to their confusion, maybe. And maybe in case we think that way, let me read another verse from the Gospel of John. That when I read it, I say, okay, wow, I see it now. Okay, this is in John chapter 20. Peter and John have just ran to the tomb of Jesus, and they found it empty. And John 20, verses 8 and 9 says this, Then the other disciple, that's John, who had reached the tomb first, I don't know, was that a jab at Peter that John ran a little bit faster? John reached the tomb first, says, also went in and he saw and believed. And then listen. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Do you see there? They really didn't put all the pieces together until after the resurrection took place. They just, they couldn't fathom what Jesus was talking about, but they, they finally got it when it happened. And they, of course, we know, they turned the world upside down after that, telling people everywhere what had happened. But hopefully, hopefully you can see that um, at this point in Mark, they, they just don't fully understand what Jesus is telling them. They were confused. And I just want us to not be confused when we read those verses. I'm just trying to help us make sense of these verses. So let that lead us into the last point for today, which is number four, the Scripture fulfilled. They just asked him about this coming of Elijah 
And how does Jesus answer their question about the coming of Elijah? Well, he says, basically, the scribes were right. For one thing, verse 12, he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. But then he adds, and how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. So Jesus says, yes, the scriptures do say that Elijah must come first to restore all things. But then he adds, did you also notice, though, what the scripture says about the Son of Man? And how he's going to suffer many things and be treated with contempt. It's like he's saying, yes, the scribes were correct about the Elijah part, but more importantly, what's written about me, the Son of Man? Have you read Isaiah 53 about the, the suffering servant who makes atonement for the sin of many? Or what about the anointed one of Daniel 9, which says he's going to be cut off? Or what about the man of Psalm 22 who is mocked and despised by the people, who says his bones are out of joint, says his hands and feet are pierced, says they gambled over his garments? That's all in Psalm 22. What about those scriptures, Jesus says? Don't forget about those. And he says, oh, and back to Elijah that you were asking about, let me tell you something. Elijah did come. And guess what they did to him? They did whatever they pleased. What's he talking about? In case it's not obvious in Mark, you probably remember what Matthew says. Matthew 17, 13, which is a verse right after what we've just read. Jesus says, you know, he tells them, that they did to him whatever they pleased. And then it says, Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So Jesus is saying that this Elijah figure that Malachi was talking about has been fulfilled in the person of John the Baptist. And it's really neat because God spoke that way of John the Baptist even before he was born. Jesus wasn't just, you know, to a skeptic trying to mock the Bible. It might appear Jesus is just making up something in the moment, something out of left field. What? Malachi was talking about John the Baptist? This is not coming out of left field at all. Listen to this in Luke chapter 1. This is when John's father, John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, he's being instructed by this angel from the Lord about who his son John would be. Listen to it. Luke 1, 13 to 17. It says, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah 
to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. You recognize that language from Malachi? So basically here's what's happening. Jesus is saying Elijah does come first as the forerunner of the Messiah, but guess what? He did come. And did that usher in some sort of victorious time period that you guys have been looking for? No. What'd they do to him? They killed him. In the words of Jesus, they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. Verse 13. If you think back to Elijah's day, he had some big wigs of his day coming after his life, didn't he? Remember Jezebel? That evil queen? She wanted to kill him. She hated Elijah. She wanted him dead, but God ultimately preserved Elijah's life, but he didn't preserve John the Baptist's life. He allowed John to be beheaded in this twisted tale He allows John, the forerunner of the Messiah, to be given over at the request of a young dancing girl whose wicked mother hated John at the permission and call of this spineless king, Herod. So think about that. Jesus is saying, Elijah did come, and what happened? Did he usher in the start of this messianic political kingdom like you've been told your whole life is going to happen incorrectly? No. The human powers that be had him executed. And here's the thing. What happened to my faithful forerunner, Jesus is saying, is also going to happen to me. That's what I've been trying to tell you. I'm traveling the same path that John had to take. But none of this is outside the sovereign plan of his father. It's all been written in the scripture. The scripture's fulfilled for hundreds of years. You just hadn't seen it yet. They'll see it on the day that Jesus rose. But they've been trying to work out in their minds how all this, how's this suffering and dying talk fit with our expectations of the Messiah, and Jesus says, it's all there in Scripture. Elijah came. They killed him. They're going to kill me as well. And the glory that you just got a sneak peek of on top of that mountain is coming, but not in a way that you expect. There's going to be some suffering before that glory. And I I just want to bring all this together and and conclude this way as we consider everything that Jesus has said here. Let's think about the gospel together. The gospel is the good news that there is a God in heaven who sent his son to earth not to wipe out sinful humanity with his holy Blazing glory could have easily done that. 
But he came instead to suffer himself so that sinners could be forgiven. He didn't come to exert his rule and authority with a rod of iron at his first coming. He came in great humility. He was born just the same way we are. A little helpless baby that somebody could hold in their arms who couldn't yet talk, who couldn't yet walk. And he grew into a man and he grew into a man who so walked in God's will that he never sinned even once. And he travels around preaching and healing people of their diseases, which was a even in itself, a different kind of preview of his coming kingdom, right? They just got a preview on top of that mountain with this radiance shining out of Jesus, but he's been walking around with bubbles of his kingdom all over the place, healing people. And he ultimately goes to Jerusalem where he lets sinful men kill him. By letting them nail him to a cross between two criminals. Fulfilling everything prophesied about him in the scriptures. And then three days later, everything he did and said is validated by God himself. When he does something that doesn't happen in nature by itself, he takes up his life again. And he defeats sin, and death. And now, here we are. You and I are called to believe in Him and trust in Him, right? To repent of our sin and to trust in that saving work that we see Him accomplishing in the book of Mark. But, but think of it. Um, Jesus didn't try to snatch His glory without accomplishing our redemption first. He could have, just, could have just sat down on the throne where he deserved to be the entire time and took the glory that he deserved the entire time and let sinners die like they deserved, right? Like we deserved. But instead, he, he brings us along with him in this glorious story. He saves us and raises us with him to be with him forever. But oh, what he's going to go through to accomplish that. And when we see, I think, Jesus on top of this mountain giving this preview of his great glory to come and then comes down from the mountain saying, now that's what's coming, gentlemen, but not before I accomplish the work that my Father has sent me to do, which is to drink this horrible cup of his wrath down to the last drop for all of my people. When we read things like this and we put these events together that it's this glorious transfigured Christ who humbled himself to save us, that should inflame our hearts to love him. It ought to hit us right between the eyes, right? He did 
what we should say. Let it hit you freshly. We're too used to the good news, aren't we? He brought me along with him to glory. He raised me to be seated with him in the heavenly places. He lets me see his glory for all eternity and live with him. Why? Why did he do that? Why didn't he pull back at the last minute? Why didn't he turn back? Why didn't he just give us what we deserve? Ephesians 2 tells us why. In one of the most glorious verses I can ever fathom. It says he did it for this reason. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He just wanted to demonstrate, in other words, before the eyes of every creature and before all of creation, that he is rich in grace and kindness through the person of his son, Jesus. That's it. It wasn't because we were lovely or worthy, right? It wasn't because he just couldn't resist loving us because we were really something. Not at all. He did it so that we would know how kind and gracious he is. What a God. Why should we get to take part in this glory? Why should we get to see Jesus in all of his unveiled glory one day? We're not worthy of that. The song says, why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. The only answer we can give is God willed it to be so. Simply because he is kind. And if that message isn't worth proclaiming, I don't know what is. Do you? And by the way, we're living in post-resurrection time period, so there's no reason to keep silent about it anymore. Like he told the disciples that day. He's risen. So we ought to just open our mouths and let it rip, right? Look at him. See his glory, see his power, submit to him. Look at how he humbled himself for us. That's our king. Praise the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we just stand in awe of your redemptive plan. You are unfathomably kind to sinners like us. Your grace, Lord, is too much for us to wrap our minds around. It is too high for us. The one, Lord, who deserved and who deserves all glory and praise forever submitted himself to be spit upon and beaten and scourged and crucified so that I might spend eternity with him in joy unspeakable and full of glory. Lord, melt 
hearts today with that news. Dissolve our hearts in thankfulness and melt our eyes to tears, as the hymn writer wrote. Lord, thank you for the comfort that your sovereignty brings us. This plan of salvation, Lord, that you have carried out, it was fixed in eternity past in the counsel of the divine persons of the Trinity before time began. And Lord, each step of the way, nothing has been thwarted. Nothing has changed. You never turned away. You never changed your mind. Your son never backed down from his mission that you sent him to do and that he willingly submitted himself to do. He loved us with love's crowning deed, the giving of his own life to save ours. And everything that's happened to him, Lord, has been written in Scripture. And Lord, even that is a comfort to us because we say now, looking back on it, that the very worst thing, the crucifixion of your son, it says in Scripture was predestined by you to take place. And if the worst thing that could ever happen was under your divine sovereignty, then we have no doubt that everything that happens in history and everything that happens in our little lives is also under your divine sovereignty. Help us to rest in that. Thank you for this passage today, Lord. Thank you for the suffering Savior we've read about and we've seen in these pages. And we pray all this in his name.